does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? Welcome to Enemy of the Surveillance State, where we discuss news, tips, and open source tools to help you protect your privacy in an age of mass digital surveillance. I am your host, C. Mitchell Shaw, and this week we're going to be discussing encryption and how when used properly, encryption can guard your privacy by protecting your data and your communications against unwanted intrusion. We'll also discuss the surveillance state's war on encryption and the types of encryption that I recommend you use and the types of encryption that I recommend you avoid this week on Enemy of the Surveillance State. Okay, so before we get into the nuts and bolts of this week's episode, let me take a moment to thank you all for listening, and let me apologize that it has been two weeks since the last episode was published. I had intended to publish an episode every Friday, uh, but as many of you know, because I've put this out on the internet for to make people aware of why there was a delay in publishing a new episode, I've been dealing with kidney stones, and that has really kind of taken me out of things for about a week and a half now, so Thanks for your patience. Uh, moving forward, I intend to publish an episode every Friday. So if you've not already subscribed, be sure to do so either at Podbean or wherever you grab your podcasts. Okay, so that sound clip at the beginning of this week's episode was Senator Wyden in March of 2013 asking that question to the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper. Uh, that question and James Clapper's dishonest answer to it, which I'll play in a moment, are at the very heart of why encryption is so important. So James Clapper was asked under in sworn testimony before the U.S. Senate, live on camera with a microphone in his face, the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? Here's that question in context with his answer. I thank you, and this for you, Director Clapper, again on the surveillance front, and I hope we can do this in just a yes or no answer, because I know Senator Feinstein wants to move on. Last summer, the NSA director was at a conference, and he was asked a question about the NSA surveillance of Americans. He replied, and I quote here, the story that we have millions or hundreds of millions of dossiers on people is completely false. The reason I'm asking the question is, having served on the committee now for a dozen years, I don't really know what a dossier is in this context. So what I wanted to see is if you could give me a yes or no answer to the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. There are cases where they could in inadvertently, perhaps, uh, collect, but not, not wittingly. All right. So not wittingly, no. His, his initial answer when asked the question is point blank, no, sir. 
Only when Wyden pushes him out of, I think, amazement at the answer, no, they don't, uh, he comes back and says, not wittingly. It could inadvertently happen. We'll see what we now know because of Snowden's disclosures subsequent to this is that Director Clapper lied under oath. The NSA was indeed collecting data on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans and continues to do so. Uh, So he absolutely lied under oath. These are the people, the surveillance hawks that run the surveillance state, both in politics and in the intelligence community, are dishonest. They will flat out lie. Now, he was never held accountable. He never will be held accountable for that. Uh, He gets away with lying under oath to Congress and nothing is done about it. So this, oh, and by the way, subsequently, he uh, was questioned about his answer because it was obvious that his answer was patently false. And he sort of admitted the dishonesty of his answer without really admitting that he lied. Here's that sound clip. I was asked, when are you going to start stop beating your wife kind of question, which is meaning not um, answerable necessarily by a simple yes or no. So I responded in what I thought was the most truthful or least untruthful manner by saying no. The least untruthful or most truthful. So I, I lied a little bit and I mostly told the truth when in reality he just flat out lied because the question is not akin to have you stopped beating your wife? That question really cannot be answered just yes or no. Because if you ask me, have you stopped beating your wife? And I say yes, it implies that at some point in the past, I beat my wife. If you ask me, have you stopped beating your wife? And I say no, it implies that I still and continue to beat my wife. Okay, so this is not that question. This question is actually pretty simple. Does the NSA or does the NSA not collect data on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans. Any type of data at all is Wyden's question. That question can be answered yes or no, and the honest answer is yes, we are doing that, and we're going to continue to do it. But instead, he lied, and only when he was called out did he try to soft sell it by saying that he was attempting to give the most truthful or least untruthful answer. But he's not alone in this, okay? Uh, A couple of years ago, there was this big fiasco, FBI versus Apple, over the encryption of Saeed Farouk's cell phone, this terrorist that had shot up uh, California, and uh, he and his wife. And so the FBI is in possession of his iPhone. They want to get into this phone, but of course it's encrypted. They don't know the passcode. If they put in the wrong passcode so many times, it'll just lock the phone up. And then, you know, they'd have to know his credentials to get back in. So they go to Apple with a warrant and they say, get us into this phone, force a fake update to this phone that will allow us to put in a password that we already know so that we can get past the encryption on this phone. They could not break the encryption. What they tried to break was the password by forcing Apple to put in a back door to that phone so that they could get in. Apple resisted because to even create such a thing as a back door into their system would mean that that back door could really be used on any phone owned by anybody. So Obama, President Obama, is asked about this right in the middle of it. Now, he can't answer that question directly, but here is what he did have to say. And I am of the view that there are 
very real reasons why we want to make sure that government cannot just willy-nilly get into everybody's iPhones that is full of, or smartphones that are full of uh, very personal information and very personal data. And let's face it, uh, the, the, the whole Snowden disclosure episode elevated people's suspicions of this. So does popular culture, by the way, which um, makes it appear as if, you know, I'm in the sit room and I'm moving things. <laughs> and I'm... You've you been know, watching Homeland There's or like right? some yeah. half a fingerprint and, you know, half an hour later I'm tracking the guy and the... It's, streets it, of Istanbul. It's not and, nearly uh, that cool. It turns out it, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work way. that way. Sometimes I'm just trying to get a connection. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Good. Great. No, but, but, but look, we, we, the, the, uh, uh, that was a real issue. I will say, by the way, that, and, and I don't want to go too far afield, but the Snowden issue um, vastly overstated the dangers to U.S. citizens in terms of spying. Because the fact of the matter is, is that actually our intelligence agencies are pretty scrupulous about uh, U.S. persons, people on U.S. soil. So our intelligence agencies are pretty scrupulous about Americans or people on U.S. soil. Uh, so let me say this, regardless of what you think about President Barack Obama, regardless of what you think about his eight years in the White House, regardless of what you think about his policies, his politics, who he is as a person, my hat is off to him for his ability to take a very serious issue and code it in as comedy with his delivery to tie Snowden's disclosures into some stupid hacker movie where some guy's able to just like tap a few keys and get into something and then, since we all know that's nonsense, Obama ties that together with what Snowden's disclosures showed. And by the way, if you've not read Snowden's book, I recommend that you read Snowden's book. If you've not read the Snowden disclosures, I recommend you read the Snowden disclosures. Because the reality is, Obama just flat out lied. The Snowden disclosures did not exaggerate or overemphasize anything about the danger to Americans being spied on by our own government. I addressed some of this in last week's episode. If you've not listened to that, be sure to go back and listen to it. But the reality is simply this. The NSA, CIA, FBI, the all of the other alphabet agencies out there do have the ability to surveil us on a very, very deep level, collect all of that data, put it all together into exactly what Senator Wyden called it, a dossier on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans, that is a reality. And the information that they can gather that way is beyond scary because that data knows you better than you know yourself. So Obama's comedic dismissal of the Snowden disclosures notwithstanding, they stand. Those disclosures stand and they speak for themselves because they are actual files, actual documents from the NSA and NSA contractors that are being used to spy on Americans. They speak for themselves, and Obama can't dismiss them with his wonderful comedic skills and his wonderful speaking presence. And then there's his, um, his claim that the intelligence agencies are scrupulous. 
Can anyone define scrupulous for me in this context? Because I see nothing scrupulous about a secret process for obtaining a secret warrant from a secret court, the FISA court, and then being able to just execute that warrant at will. He used the phrase willy-nilly. We don't want people willy-nilly being able to get into people. That's exactly what they have. They have a process where willy-nilly, the government can absolutely get into your devices, can break your communications, can get into your data, okay? Uh, but not only that, not only do they get to set their own rules, not only do they get to apply for a secret warrant to a secret court via a secret process, but more often than not, they don't even bother to do that. They've got this super low bar that they set for themselves and they don't even abide by that. More often than not, they are just tapping directly into a trunk line in uh, AT&T's uh, services uh, in the, in, within their buildings, within their offices. They're doing the same thing with Verizon. They're doing the same thing with Comcast. They're doing the same thing across the board. That is exactly not scrupulous. So again, thanks for the joke time, Mr. Obama, but I, I think we need to face reality about this. And the reality is this. They are not scrupulous and they are harvesting your data everywhere they can. So what does this mean about encryption? Because the real issue here, the real reason for the Apple fiasco was not that one phone on which their intelligence had already told them they weren't going to get any data. They knew they weren't going to get anything off of that phone. They were using that phone as a red herring to get a backdoor into all smartphones because if they could have forced Apple to do that they then could have turned around and forced Google to do the same thing with Android they could have done the same thing with all forms of encryption on all devices so really this is part and parcel of the crypto wars the first round of the crypto wars dates all the way back to the beginning pretty much of any encryption that was worth anything so in um, July of 2016, I wrote an article for the New American Magazine called Government's All-Access Pass to Your Privacy. In that, I addressed the crypto wars, uh, what I call Crypto War 1.0 uh, in the 1990s, and I'll read to you a short section from that article. Quote, To understand what is at stake here, it is important to look at the first round of what have been called the crypto wars. In 1991, a 37-year-old software engineer named Phil Zimmerman wrote an encryption program called Pretty Good Privacy, PGP. PGP allowed anyone with a fairly modern computer and the ability to follow instructions to encrypt their emails in such a way that, one, the email could be read only by the intended recipient, and two, the email could be digitally signed in such a way that the recipient could be sure that it was sent by the sender and not by an imposter. He made this program available for download on the Internet, which was fairly young but quickly growing. He also published the source code of the program in an old-fashioned book form and directly exported the book all over the world. Zimmerman and those using his new encryption standard quickly ran into a problem. The U.S. government classified as a munition any encryption program strong enough to actually work and banned its export. Since the Internet made it possible for anyone in the world to get their hands on a copy of the program and also made it impossible to prevent them from doing so, Zimmerman soon found himself under criminal investigation by the U.S. Customs Service for alleged violations of the Arms Export Control Act, end quote. And that is the beginning of the crypto wars. 
They go back and forth in court for years over this. Uh, there's a book called uh, PGP and GPG, Email for the Practical Paranoid, written by Michael W. Lucas. And in the book, he gives the history. He explains that what wound up happening was that Zimmerman outsmarted the feds with a simple process. Remember, he had written the open source code, and I'll talk more about open source in a moment, but he had written the open source code for that program as a book that anyone could type it out themselves by just copying it off the pages of the book. They could recreate his program. And then he sent that book all over the world. By doing that, he made this note because the book is not a program. The book is a recipe to the program. What the law said was that you could not export the program. So his argument was, I'm not exporting the program. I am exporting a book. This is a free speech issue. This is a freedom of the press issue, not an encryption issue. And so eventually what wound up happening, President Clinton in the 1990s that uh, saw that the law was changed and that encryption was removed from the list of things considered an ordinance. But let's talk about that for a second. A computer program was in the same category as a grenade or a pipe bomb. The only logical takeaway from this is that the federal government considers that the surveillance state, even as early as the 1990s, considered any encryption that could guard your communications against unwanted intrusion by them or anyone else as a threat. The surveillance state absolutely despises good encryption. And let me explain what I mean by good encryption. But first, let's talk about what encryption even is. So encryption basically is a mathematical equation that scrambles all of your data, so let's say you encrypt your hard drive, it would scramble all of the data on your hard drive and lock that down behind a key. That key is accessible only through entering the correct password or passphrase. So all of your information is there, it's all available, it's just scrambled. If anyone were to look at, a, say, try to open a file on your computer that were encrypted, without decrypting it by using the passphrase to unlock the key for the encryption, all they would see is a scramble of random characters, letters, numbers, symbols. They would not actually be able to see that file. They would not be able to read that document, look at that picture, watch that video. So by encrypting your hard drive, you scramble it in such a way that only someone who has the passphrase and can unlock the key would have access to those files and folders on your hard drive. For your communications, we use something called end-to-end -end encryption so that a, a communication leaving my computer or leaving my mobile phone is encrypted on my device. And it is, so that is on this end. And then it is only decrypted on the end user's device that I send it to. So for a phone call, it's encrypted on my phone. It goes through the air to the cell towers. It goes from cell tower to cell tower. It goes across all the lines and then back to another cell tower, back to my friends or my family members mobile device that then decrypts it. So anytime it's in transit, it is encrypted and no one would, they could receive it. They could intercept it, but it would just be garbled nonsense to them. It'd be squeaks and clicks. 
rather than my voice saying whatever it is I'm saying. So that is what encryption is. But it is important to realize that not all forms of encryption are equal. So let's say you've got your Microsoft Windows computer open in front of you, and you've got BitLocker or whatever Microsoft is offering uh, these days as their uh, encryption program for that computer. That is a proprietary closed source program, as opposed to an open source program where anyone anywhere in the world can actually download the source code of that program and audit it. They can review it. They can look at it. They can say, hey, there's this line of code right here that makes no sense whatsoever except as a backdoor or except as a weakness. That would be considered a bug and it would be fixed immediately. Now, that would be an open source software. Proprietary software, like anything by Microsoft, uh, most anything by Apple, the source code is closed. You don't get to see it. So by analogy, it would be like if you went into the grocery store, you're running late, you don't have time to actually make dinner, so you're just going to buy some frozen dinner and take it home and put it in the oven for you know 30 minutes or whatever and kind of try to fool yourself into believing that you made dinner. So you're looking through the freezer section and you find something that looks good. You turn it over and look on the back of it for the ingredients because you want to know what you're eating. And instead of listing the ingredients, it simply says, this product contains a proprietary blend of nutrients, spices, and flavors. Period. The end. They will not tell you what is in the food. Would you buy it? Would you want to put that into your body? I wouldn't. And I feel exactly the same way about software. Because software, because computers, because programs can be used to threaten my liberty and my privacy, I will not use software unless that source code is available. So this would be like going into the grocery store and picking up a frozen dinner and turning it over to look at, a, at the ingredients on the back and seeing a lot more than just the ingredients. Not only does it list every ingredient, it lists the measurements of those ingredients and how they're assembled. It's a recipe for the meal. You could actually then at that point put that meal back on the shelf and go home with that recipe and make it yourself at home. That is what open source software is. You get to see everything that's in it. You actually see the source code that was used to build the program. They give you the recipe the same way Zimmerman did for PGP in his book. In an article in the past couple of weeks, the Washington Post really sort of illustrates the difference between proprietary software and open source software. The article is called The Intelligence Coup of the Century. For decades, the CIA read the encrypted communications of allies and adversaries. It was published February 11, 2020 by the Washington Post. I'll put a link in the show notes. Make sure you check that out. In a nutshell, here's what happened. Coming out of World War II, this company called Crypto AG was the company. It was a Swiss company, and they were the company for making encryption devices and codes. 120 nations on the planet were using their product to encrypt their private communications, to encrypt their government secrets, to encrypt communications back and forth with agents in the field. What they did not know, what those 120 countries did not know, is that the CIA owned Crypto AG and was building in backdoors. The reason they couldn't know that is because the source code was closed. No one was showing them how these devices were built. No one was showing them the computer code. This went all the way 
into the early 2000s, at least, at least as late as 2018, this was still going on. Uh, read the article at the Washington Post, check it out for yourself. But the only takeaway for this is that you should only be using open source encryption software. I would recommend that you only use open source software across the board. I use Linux on all of my computers. I run a specialized version of Android on my smartphone that does not contain any proprietary Google bits. It doesn't contain anything Google at all. I'll be doing an episode in the future on how I did that and what I would recommend for your devices because there are easier ways to do what I've done if you're willing to spend a little bit of money to do it. But in the end, uh, what I would consider minimum wage privacy protection, like if you just want to protect your privacy at all, I would start with replacing your operating system with Linux, unless you're already using Linux, and using open source encryption. Every Linux distribution I am aware of uh, contains, uh, it comes with encryption baked in, part of the installation process. It will ask you whether you want to encrypt your hard drive, and your answer should be yes. If you are locked into using Windows, I would still look for some type of open source encryption program to encrypt your hard drive so that when you boot your computer up, the first question it asks you is for your encryption password. Encrypt everything. Look for open source encryption programs and applications like I mentioned ProtonMail last week. Do your own research and find an open source end-to-end -end encrypted zero knowledge program. Okay, something like ProtonMail. For texts, I recommend using Signal. I don't recommend WhatsApp. I recommend Signal. Uh, Signal has been around longer. The technology is more developed and the organization behind it is much more transparent than Facebook, which now owns WhatsApp. So uh, look for open source, end-to-end -end encrypted, if possible, zero knowledge, meaning not even the people running the servers have access to your information because they don't know your password. Programs like Signal, like ProtonMail. You know, if you're using a, a cloud backup uh, program similar to uh, Google Drive or um, Dropbox, I would recommend SpiderOak. It is zero knowledge, end-to-end -end encrypted, open source software. This is the only way to go. Um, if you really want to protect your privacy, you need to be using these services and replacing the other services that you've been using. Now, look, I recognize that switching email providers or uh, switching the way you do texts or changing out your operating system. I realize these things are uncomfortable and have some, you know, there's going to be a learning curve. Uh, switching email providers can just be a pain. But you've got to ask yourself, is it worth it to protect my privacy? If you're here listening to this program, you're probably concerned about your privacy. I would recommend, and I'll put all of the, the links in the show notes, I recommend ProtonMail. Just go to ProtonMail.com, uh, sign up for a free account. They've got instructions on there for uh, exporting all of your contacts from Google, so from Gmail, and then importing those into ProtonMail. If you can't find those instructions, just do a quick internet search. You can find a video or an article that will explain how to do this. ProtonMail has that article on their website. You'll just have to look for it. Uh, they keep moving it around, so I don't know exactly where it is on their website these days. Uh, but do that, 
And then here's what I did. It took me about six months to make the full transition. Uh, so what I did was I just continued to send out emails to everybody in my address book and say, hey, I'm switching my email over on this date. I set a date out about six months and said, uh, I'm gonna on this date, I'm going to be abandoning my Gmail. I'm not going to be checking that at all anymore. Uh, I'm just going to walk away from it. So if you want to reach out to me, email me here at my address at protonmail.com. So, you know, people would still, you know, they ignore that. They continue to email me at Gmail and I would reply back to them and copy my Proton Mail address in that and say, hey, please let's move this conversation over here because that's going to be the email provider that I'm using. And about six months later, I was finally down to the point that almost no one was still trying to email me at Gmail. I just walked away from it. If you're still emailing me at my old Gmail account, guys, I'm not getting that. You need to switch over and start emailing me to that same address at protonmail.com. Uh, I used the same name there that I had used at Gmail. Uh, the email address for this show is enemyofsurveillance at protonmail.com. Uh, I recommend also that you go ahead and download and begin using the Signal Encrypted Email app or text app. Uh, it allows encrypted texts, encrypted phone calls because those go out over the data line. It is illegal in the United States of America to make an encrypted phone call over phone lines, over voice communication lines. Again, uh, that's just their way of trying to force everyone to make themselves easily surveillable. But... There's a loophole in the law that allows uh, internet phone calls, so like Skype or anything like that, uh, to be encrypted. So what Signal does is they send that out over the data towers instead of the voice tower. So it goes out as a data call instead of a voice call, and those can be encrypted, and that also allows end-to-end -end encrypted uh, video calls. So it's very, very well done. It's very mature. Uh, you'll enjoy it. If you're using iPhones... Uh, it will serve as a second app because Apple will not allow you to replace your existing text app with another app. If you're using Android, when you go to set up your Signal account on your phone, one of the questions it will ask you is whether you want this to become your only text app. If you say yes, it'll ask if you want to import all of your previous text from the other app into this. Say yes, and then you never touch your other text app again. Any texts between Signal users any phone calls, any video calls between two signal users will be end-to-end, zero-knowledge encrypted, okay? If I send a text to someone who is not on signal, that, that text will not be encrypted. That phone call will not be encrypted. That video call will not be encrypted. But I get an, a notification, a little, a little icon on the screen that shows me that that is not an encrypted call. That is not an encrypted text or an encrypted video call. So I at least know what's going on. So for anything really sensitive, I just told my friends, hey, look, uh, if we're going to talk about this this kind of thing or that kind of thing back and forth on Signal, I really recommend, uh, on text, I really recommend that you use the Signal app. And most of my, a good number of my friends anyway, have switched over. And so a good portion of my communications are now fully encrypted when I discuss anything at all with those people, even if it's just, hey, are you coming over Friday night? Uh, so that we can watch a movie. So uh, I would do that and then check out um, spideroak.com for a one-to-one -one comparison to anything offered by Dropbox or Google Drive or anything like that, with, but with the addition of end-to-end -end encryption, zero knowledge. So these things, if you will do these things, encrypt your hard drive, 
and encrypt your communications, your emails and your texts and your phone calls, if you will do those things, you will already be light years ahead of where you are today in protecting your privacy. You will know that that phone call between you and your wife, no one but you and your wife can hear that phone call. That text between you and your best friend, no one but you and your best friend or someone that one of you shows it to can read that. Same thing with your emails. The piece of knowing that your communications are protected and that your the data that rests on your hard drive, so not just your data in motion, meaning your communications, but also your data at rest, documents, bank forms, pictures, videos, whatever lives on your hard drive is encrypted and no one who doesn't know that password can get into it, that peace of mind is worth a lot to you. So I hope this is helpful. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Um, be sure to like and subscribe if you have not already done so. And since privacy is more fun when you share it, make sure your friends and family members are aware of this program and can check it out. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week on Enemy of the Surveillance State. <laughs>